0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And I'd like to begin this morning by saying, my sons and I have never run a 5K, <laughs> and as long as I'm their dad, we won't. Uh, so, just differences between Zach and myself. All right, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. We're glad you're with us. If you're visiting, my name's Mark. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, grateful to have that opportunity, and we're we're just glad you're with us. We know you could have chosen a bunch of places to worship, so whether you come here every week or this is your first week, uh, we're very encouraged that you would join us to worship Jesus. And in our series uh, of the gospel, we are looking at a very uh, difficult chapter. Matthew chapter 12 is a difficult chapter, not difficult to understand, but difficult because of the conversations about it that take place in Christianity, let me take those of you that weren't with us last week back to where we were because we need that information to, or to have the inspiration to be able to translate what we're going to study this morning. The scribes and the Pharisees have been following Jesus for some time now because if, you'll, if you notice, we're looking at five movements of Jesus' life. Uh, we've identified them to the best of our ability, five movements through the chronology of his life, and we began the fourth uh, movement in his life last week called the Revolution. The crowds had begun to gather during the recognition phase. They, he went from the arrival to a period of obscurity to a period of recognition, and now we're entering into the revolution stage where Jesus is beginning to articulate and call a distinction from the world, and he's doing it against his enemies. Though they're coming after him. The Pharisees and the scribes were gathering, trying to catch Jesus and use something against him to take him out of the public eye. Last week, there was a passage where Jesus had uh, seen a young man who was demon-possessed, who was blind and deaf and could not speak. And Jesus cast the demon out of him and healed him completely so he could see, so he could speak, so he could hear. And they said, his enemy said, he does that by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous that you would say that I did it by the power of Satan. How could Satan cast himself out, and why would Satan destroy something that he'd worked to develop, it made no sense. And he said, be very careful. You can say things against me because they didn't understand him. He said, you can say things against you know, this or that because you're, you don't understand. But when you see the Spirit of God moving, and you see healings and miracles, and you see these things occurring, and you say they're not of God, he said, be very careful. That will not be forgiven. And if you were with us last week, the distinction we want to make is This isn't Jesus saying that there comes a point in time where you tick God off so much that he won't forgive you. Actually, what Jesus is saying is there'll come a point where you're done with God because he's never going to be done with you. And what we learned last week is that if we shut ourselves off from the one person who can lead us to repentance, the Holy Spirit, we shut ourselves off from forgiveness. Because where there is no repentance and confession of sin, there is no forgiveness. And in, in light of that, we continue in the story of Matthew chapter 12, and you can't treat it like last week and this week. It's actually a continuum of thought and story that takes us two weeks to process. Look at verse 38. Then some scribes and Pharisees said, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. What? You mean outside of the deaf, dumb, and blind guy? That, that, wasn't, that didn't work? The thing you dismissed, you want to see another sign? Now, Jesus, and I know this will shock all of you, but Jesus is just a whole lot better than me, because at that point in time, I would have struck somebody dead, and then I'd have gone, enough, you know, huh? One Pharisees, a pile of smoke, are we done? But he didn't. Jesus gives them two signs, but they're not the kind of signs they asked for. Jesus is giving them what they need, not what they want. He's really good at that. The signs before us. First, he begins with the sign of Jonah. And just want to refer to this if you're taking notes. Just write down God's grace through the resurrection. He gives them a sign. Now, they wanted a miracle. They wanted Jesus to perform something that they could document. Instead, he said, there's enough evidence. And before we proceed, I want to challenge each one of us. If you're looking at this as a historical story so you can look at the Pharisees and look down on them or look at the scribes and look down on them or ask the question, how can these people be so ignorant? Please understand, they're not here. We're talking to each other. We need to learn the same lesson they learned. For many of us, we want God to do another sign. We want God to put on a show. We want God to say, okay, I'm now ready for you to reveal yourself, and I want you to be very careful. He's already given us enough signs. There's already enough evidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to answer your questions. Be careful that you're not putting God to the test another time. Jesus says in verse 39, he answered them, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Whoops. How to alienate your audience in the first sentence. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. I'm going to just make some assumptions that you don't know the story of Jonah, but I'm also going to throw in a free advertisement. I don't do this enough. But my good friend, Jason French, just finished a six-week class on the book of Jonah on Wednesday nights. Now, for those of you that don't attend Wednesday nights, for whatever reason, I want you to know the material presented in most of our adult classes is available through our podcasts or on our website. You just have to go to our website, ccochurch.com and backslash teaching. And the classes you miss, you can have available on your phones, on your computers, you can study at home. And I really encourage you, I hope Jason's not in here so he hears me being nice about him, but he did a great job with it. It And I listen to him, uh, all the teachings I listen to during the week as I go about my my life as well. But I really want to encourage you because the story of Jonah is a a story that fits us today. And there's question today whether or not it was real or is it like, it was a kind of a parable thing. I'm telling you, I believe if Jesus used it as an example, it happened. He wouldn't have referred to mythology. He was talking about fact. And he tells the story of this man named Jonah. God told Jonah to go to a town that Jonah didn't want to go to to preach the good news of hope to people he didn't like. So Jonah decided to do the opposite. And uh, how shall I phrase this? God, in very subtle ways, drew Jonah back to Nineveh by putting him inside of a large fish in the middle of a storm. And three days later, he was puked up on the beach and he went and preached to Nineveh. And not only did he preach the gospel of a hope, that there is a God who loves them enough to allow them to repent so they can be forgiven. In that moment, the King James Version says, 120,000 people turned to God and the cows, the cattle. That's preaching, church. I'm going to tell you right now. If you preach a revival and cats and dogs come down the aisle with their owners, you've done good work. And it's in the Bible. Look it up. I promise it's there. So we have this moment where the entire town was offered grace, that a God they had been rejecting and serving other gods was willing if they would turn their hearts back toward them. And when they heard the message of hope, without a miracle being done, they repented and they were forgiven and received grace. And Jesus said, in the same way, I will be in the earth three days and three nights, and you will know that someone greater than Jonah is here. And he gives them another sign, the sign of Solomon. The sign of Solomon I'd like to just encapsulate as God's wisdom for all mankind. He offers the sign of grace and he offers the sign of wisdom. Verse 42, the queen of the south, some of your translations might say the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. Queen of Sheba was a powerful, godless woman who, for political alliances primarily, went to see Solomon, the richest, greatest ruler of his day, to create this political alliance. And in those moments, when she heard the wisdom of God, she began to pursue God. And Jesus uses her as an example. He said, that evil woman who heard and saw the wisdom of God will sit in judgment on you for hearing the same wisdom of God and rejecting it. It's implied that she accepted it. So they wanted a sign, and Jesus said, the only sign I'm going to give you is the grace of God and the wisdom of God, and the way you understand that evidence is to seek it, to seize it, to make it yours. He said someone is greater than Solomon, or someone greater than Solomon, rather, is here, and someone greater than Jonah is here, and Jonah's testimony and Solomon's testimony led people to know who God was. How come you're missing it? It's a legitimate challenge. I believe if you understand the simplicity of today's text, it's this. Jesus is saying to us that there are really two choices in life. There aren't three, there are two. Repent and reform, or reject and ignore. But remaining neutral is not a legitimate option. And unfortunately, if I may, editorialize for a heartbeat, I am so frightened by how many people that say they're followers of Jesus are in neutral. Living between an awareness of who Jesus is, but absolutely no commitment to who he is. And I know we're saved by grace, but there's also the truth, and wisdom comes from knowing the truth and living it out and experiencing it. And Jesus cautions us regularly about knowing what to do and not doing it. This is why he says to his audience regularly, let those, see if you know your Bible, let those who have ears and let those who have eyes See, there's no neutrality there. He is asking us to do something, not just ponder the rest of our lives away about how good he is. So, what are the dangers of neutrality? In verse 43, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. I want to pause there for just a moment. Remember, this happens. I want to keep reminding you of this so you can link the teaching together. This happens after Jesus cast out a demon that made a man deaf, dumb, and blind. So using that moment, he says, when a demon is cast out of someone, like I just did, it goes looking for a place to inhabit. It goes to the arid places, to the dry places. Picture the wilderness. As compared to when Jesus said to the woman in John chapter 4, if you would have given me a drink, I would give you this living water that springs up eternally from within. And she said, give me that drink and I'll thirst no more. And in the moment, Jesus is showing us that demons are looking for places that are filled with nothing of value. When you're filled with living water and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, demons can have nothing to do with you. Verse 44, then it says, the demon says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus challenges those of us that are immaculate but empty. Uh, Let me pose it to something that I think might give us tangible evidence of how this works in our lives. Have you ever broken a habit that you did not like about yourself or something you had allowed to happen? Have you ever broken a habit in your life and for a while you did really well with it, but then all of a sudden you did nothing with that new habit? And if that new habit wasn't there, what happened with the old habit? It came right back in, almost naturally, right? You had become so preconditioned to act and respond a certain way that without the discipline of the of this particular new habit. She said, for many that follow me, they clean their house up. They get rid of all the garbage and put it on the curb. But if they're not careful, if they don't fill that space in their life with something more meaningful, with something that's more tangible, with something that's more eternal, then they're going to find out that a lot of that garbage they put on the curb ends up coming back in the house because they, you know, I need something. I just need a couch. And so I'm going to go get that old nasty couch I threw out and I'm going to put it back in the house instead of going and getting something of greater value. You see, the spiritual life is the most important investment you make, but I think if we're all honest, it's one of the least investments of time we ever make. It's filling our lives with something so that those old thoughts, those old clips, those old rehearsed lines that give us justification for our lives are gone. Immaculate, but empty. And Jesus said, you won't be empty for long. So let me share with you what I see in the text and... He says it this way. We have the opportunity to contain God's presence. That's the good news today. You don't have to be immaculate and empty. You you don't have to live in the old habits and simply say, well, this is just the way I am. I can't overcome this. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The the addictions you suffer from, the attitudes that plague you, the, the habits we all have in our lives, and we all have them. God has not allowed us perfection He's allowed us sanctification. He's slowly pulling away all that is wrong with us. And he's taking it out in an order that doesn't always make sense to us, but it's his perfect timing and his perfect will. So instead of dragging that old nasty couch from the curb back inside, ask God, what do you want in this place? And he'll fill it. And that he'll fill it with the power of his holy presence, what we call the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul wrote to a church that was highly dysfunctional. And the reason he wrote this letter was he was like, really, this is what you're choosing to be? And he asked them the question, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? And that's not a rhetorical question, you know, a question that doesn't need an answer. He's saying, by your lives, do you not understand that when Jesus came to bring you life, he didn't just come to forgive you of your sins, he came to teach you, to guide you, to walk with you through life. And his presence is available to you. And it's available right now. And it's a greater power than anything you've ever imagined. And when God comes in and starts giving you decorating tips, you don't argue. He's like, get rid of that nasty picture. Well, that's my favorite picture. You don't need it. I like it. Get rid of it. And if you trust him, what will you do? Take it to the curb. Instead of arguing with him about how sentimental it is. You know, I, I joked about this before, and I've been here long enough that I have no news stories. When Heather and I got married, I was offended and she moved into our apartment and started getting rid of everything I owned. And after about three days, I was grateful I got to stay, because everything was gone. And what I realized is, as offended as I might have been, joking aside, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, that's my favorite spool. That, that spool has held every television I've ever owned. And she's like, we're not having a spool in our house. Those go in junkyards. And I was like, oh. And then she brought in a table. What's a table? It was beautiful. It was clean. It was nice. Her stuff was always better than my stuff. And now I walk in the house and I go, there's nothing in here that's mine, but it's awesome. (laughs) And if I can equate that, I think if you and I pay attention to who Jesus is and how much he cares for us, he's going to ask to get rid of some stuff that you value, and at the end of the day, you're going to go, it's just junk. Right, church? Is God's taste better than ours? And is he gentle as my wife was with me? Oh, she pretended I had nice stuff, and then I came home and it was gone. (laughs) John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What were the two signs that Jesus gave those who wanted to know if they could trust him? Grace and truth. Jesus said, I am the sign. Someone greater than Jonah and someone greater than Solomon is here. In John chapter 1 again, excuse me, verse 12, but as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were, now pay attention, church, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, I'm challenging you today not to be neutral when it comes to Jesus, not to just believe Jesus is worth following and then not following him, or simply saying, well, I don't want to follow him there because that's my stuff. I you know there's one room in my house if you will that I want for my stuff. And it's and not following him. And Jesus said, you you're you weren't called by God because you did something. You weren't called by God but you were raised in the right family or you have the right ethnic background or you're from you, that you're Jewish. He said, it's not of the flesh, it's not of the blood, and it wasn't your choice. It was God's from the beginning. The reason you and I have the presence of God available to us is because God has been after us from day one. He's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the sacrificing. We talked about it last week. I know it's an offensive phrase, but sometimes provocation awakens us. Only a fool would know who Jesus is and do nothing with it. Jesus said, it's by the will of God that your hearts are stirring today. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to you, whether you're saved or not saved. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you today that Jesus is real, that Jesus is legitimate, and only a fool would stay neutral about the one person who will never fail you or forsake you. Repent and reform or reject and ignore, but playing the middle is one of the struggles in most churches. People waiting for another day to deal with the truth they have today. Be cautious. I'll also tell you, and I know this will be a bit controversial, but if you'll track with me, I think you'll see why we'll do this. I think we have the opportunity to have once contained God's presence too. My Bible teaches me that we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And when Paul wrote those things in the scriptures, he was writing to believers. That you can grieve and quench what once was guiding you and leading you and fulfilling you and changing you and regenerating you. This whole redecorating thing I joke about with my wife, and it wasn't as bad as I just played it, but this whole regeneration thing that goes on is I found there was stuff that I had that she let me keep that I wanted to get rid of because her stuff was better. It was cleaner, and it actually worked. So after a while, I was just throwing my own junk away because I felt like, wow, when this new space together, I just like how she does it. Yet there comes a moment in time where I think we're cautioned throughout Scripture, not just one text, but throughout Scripture, there are going to be some people who once had this relationship with Jesus Christ, and they put it to the curb, and they threw the wrong stuff out, and they started bringing the junk back in. I think that's why Jesus would say, we've already covered it, we'll cover it again, because he says it multiple times, that not everyone who cries out, Lord, Lord, he said, I never what? I never knew you. We... We never had anything. It's the person who gets married because they want a wedding. And they have a wedding, but then they they never live in the same house. They never communicate. They never do life together. they, They never create anything together. They have no relationship, but they've been married, but they're not married. Oh, they've been married, but they don't have a marriage. Being neutral is getting married to Jesus Christ at one point in your life and never having a marriage with him the rest of your days. Be very, very careful. And I know some of you have been taught, That all you had to do is get married. And Jesus is contractually obligated to stay married to you forever. Let me ask you the question. Do you really want that? With the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord of the universe, the one who's pursued and loved your soul from the very beginning, is that really all you have in response to Jesus is to say, well, remember that day? Because now you're stuck with me. When instead of it being this relationship that changes us and guides us and leads us? You see, the danger of neutrality is that we are capable of rejecting the presence of God in our lives and what it does. So, knowing that for some, this is controversial. I'm not trying to just upset the apple cart. I'm I'm trying to be faithful to the text that I'm given and what is consistent through Scripture. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I'm going to ask you a core question about this as we go through it. So if you haven't paid attention, just walk the text with me. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. Does that sound like a Christian? Does that sound like a saved person? It does to me. A person who has received all the promises that God has promised his children. Verse 6, and then then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. If you were with us here last week, I did this little stage dance. I said, over here is this concept of us changing our minds about who Jesus is and who we are. It's called repentance. And by that form of repentance, then we can receive forgiveness because the person who won't repent and seek Jesus, he's not gonna forgive them against their will. And so we realize that by the act of repentance, by understanding who he is and submitting ourselves to him, we receive the forgiveness of this. It wasn't that we make God so mad that he won't forgive us anymore. It means that if we won't repent and see Jesus for who he is and bow before him, there'll be no forgiveness because we walk in our own light. We walk in our own darkness, if you will. And it says here in Hebrews chapter six, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because God won't know because you won't seek it. I, I tend to believe that there are moments when people walk away from God. He never walks away from us. This isn't about God's sovereignty. God will save nobody against their will. And there are some who seem to exhibit in Scripture, and there's passages throughout the Bible that lead us to believe that there is a possibility that some will forsake their faith and return back to their idols, their lusts, and their passions. That's the danger of neutrality: is to have a wedding or, or sorry to have a wedding and never live out the marriage. Now. If you're sitting there arguing with me right now, here's what I want to say. For those of you that are frustrated with me, I want to offer you something. And those of you that are fearful today, I want to offer you something too. I am not standing on the stage this morning trying to be right. But I'm telling you this. There are passages in the scripture that don't lead it to believe that you have one moment in time that you commit yourself to Jesus and then the rest of your life doesn't matter because faith produces works and faith works works. Faith lives. You don't earn heaven, and you don't keep heaven. You have a relationship with God, and I think we ought to caution ourselves when Jesus said, I never knew you. You called my name, but I never knew you. Those of you that are fearful, and you're sitting here today going, what if I do that? What if I walk away? Don't. That's my encouragement. Don't. Draw closer to him. Don't go away. Look in your house and get rid of the junk that keeps you from Jesus. I have too many things in my life that are equal to Jesus, I don't believe for a second I have anything greater than Jesus, but I have certain passions that I pursue to the same equivalency I pursue Jesus. I need to repent, don't I? I need to say, Mark, that's not healthy. You can't be as interested in this as you are in Christ. You need to lower your expectation on these things. There are certain sports teams that I care too much about, and when they lose, I think I matter about it than they are. And God's going, grow up, because none of those things matter. You know what? They're going to have a new World Series this year, and my team's not going to win it. And at the end of the day, the sun's going to rise in the morning. And as long as it's not the cardinals, praise the Lord. (laughs) So it's all going to work out, people. It's all going to work out. But when I have equivalencies to Jesus, I need to take my junk to the curb. And I'm challenging some of us today. Don't be neutral about this. Make a choice. He is Lord or he is not. And it's not hard for him to be your Lord. He's just going to rearrange your furniture. But don't be immaculate and empty. Let him come in and regenerate you from the inside out. Uh, I don't have time to cover it because I yapped too long, but if you look at verses 46 through 50, let me tell you the story and we'll land on verse 50. So open your Bibles if you close them because it's not appearing on the screen. This was a Saturday night edition. Jesus was talking to the crowd and they came to him and they said, hey, your family's outside. Your mother, your brothers, your sisters are outside. And Jesus said, well, who's my mother, brothers, and sisters? He knew. But he looked around the room, he said, These, my disciples, these that are doing. Verse 50, he said, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Do you see the expectation, church? That a relationship with Jesus isn't just all about what he did for you, it's about how we glorify him because of all he did for us. Amen? It's not just a wedding day, it's a marriage. Philippians chapter 1, Paul would put it this way, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Sounds like a developing person, doesn't it? Sounds like someone growing and abiding and experiencing and changing and pursuing, not so you'll be saved. But because you are being saved every day by his mercy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I'm going to oversee a funeral today and it's happening right in here. If you're tired of the old man and the old woman, if you're tired of the junk that fills your life, that distracts you, If you're tired of the neutrality, I love Jesus, I just don't have time to love Jesus well, then that person needs to die. You need to die to self to become alive in Christ. You need to place yourself before the cross of Jesus Christ and repent change the way you're thinking about what you're thinking about I need to lower some things that I've, or that I've elevated too high in my life so that Jesus can have priority Jesus says you can live in this world and you can enjoy the things of this world there's nothing wrong with that until they become the love of your life and then the things of the world become the enemy of God our God is a jealous God but oh he's a loving God his jealousy comes from his love he can't love you the way he loves you and watch you love something inanimate Or entertaining, or meaningless, and not be jealous over that. But his jealousy doesn't bring about anger. His jealousy brings about a passion to pursue you, so he sends his son to die on the cross to show you that you are his greatest value. And he loved nothing more for us to value him more every day, abounding in love, abounding in grace, abounding in truth, abounding in life. I said, I'm gonna oversee a funeral today, but you're gonna have to die. that to happen so do I so may those zombies that walked in this room the walking dead may there be life today may every one of us walk out of here and take the trash to the curb you do that in prayer you study the word of God you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal God is alive and well he'll speak to your heart he'll show you one thing today one single thing that he's gonna say that doesn't belong here anymore And you and I get to take it to the curb. And I hope you will. Because where there's death, only in God does it become life. And here it could become life. If you don't know what this all means and you're like, I feel something stern in me, I need to make Jesus a priority, and you don't even know how to begin, Walk out of this room, either now or at the end of this service, and take a left when you go in the foyer and there's a prayer center and a bunch of us would love to sit down and talk with you. It may take us six or eight weeks to have conversations to help you understand, but don't be neutral. Let him who has ears hear. Let him who has eyes see. And you'll see Jesus. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Oronogo. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.